0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Herman, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs.
1: Welcome to PM&R Report. We are a podcast documenting grand rounds that take place at UT Health's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We explore the latest trends, controversies, and advances in the world of PM&R. Today we'll be discussing using brain imaging patterns distributed through space and time with machine learning to detect and track Parkinson's disease and to guide endovascular stroke therapy. Today we have Dr. Luca Giancardo who currently is an assistant professor at the Center for Precision Health at UT School of Biomedical Informatics. He has a background in computer science and has a particular interest in machine learning, computer vision, image processing, to extract computational biomarkers from images and signals. He has a particular passion to find unmet medical need and to build translatable technologies to fill those needs.
2: Thank you very much for the for introduction.
1: Uh, so tell me, what is machine learning?
2: OK, what is machine learning? Machine learning is essentially a set of uh, techniques or algorithms that allow a computer to learn from, uh, from data. Okay. This is a general umbrella term, and uh, what we use these techniques for is essentially finding patterns uh, that are normally hard to see for, for humans, and this is one, one of the needs. Another type of need is automate, automate some, some processes. Those are the typical two approaches that used for.
1: So what particular unmet medical needs have you discovered in, uh, in currently? So,
2: uh, my talk today was about finding uh, uh, patterns, temporal patterns and spatial, spatial patterns, and this is more the methodology standpoint, but then this methodology allows us to uh, tackle medical needs into Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, and the stroke. So, Parkinson's disease or, or Alzheimer's have a long prodromal phase in which people undergo a neurodegeneration that is very, very hard to measure. So what we're trying to do is using the brain images to quantify these, uh, these, these neurodegeneration. This will help clinical trials, for instance, to find you know, people that are going to develop partners in the future and stop this progression. Because if you have no way of measuring if something, if you are improving or not, you have no way of testing if these drugs work or
1: not. So for instance, you're saying that um, before the development of obvious clinical signs of Parkinson's disease, we might be able to capture um, these, these people, people who may be at high risk of developing Parkinson's disease, use their brain imaging using advanced uh, an MRI, apply it to an algorithm and actually see if, yes, they would develop Parkinson's disease or no, they might not. Is that correct? This is, this is correct. Very, uh, a couple of caveats. <laughs> So the
2: uh, one caveat is that for finding like this in a general population, that will be very hard mm-hmm. because we cannot do imaging on every, yeah, every, every single person. Also, uh, there are also other, other approaches like uh, PET imaging or some other type of assays that you know, could, could work as well. So it's a, in a holistic approach. What we're trying to do is, what we've shown, that by using a specific imaging approach, we, can, we indeed can measure these um, these changes and, and this is important once people are enrolled in clinical trials and then you see you know are you getting better or are you getting worse for actually identified people in the general population we will need different type of approaches I think.
1: So currently what are the for this particular type of um, for this particular type of research it looks like you have to get images from earlier on, and then also images from later on, what's the, the time difference that we're usually looking at in terms of before and after pictures?
2: So we tested our approaches with uh, around six months and one year to finding if we could see progression patterns, but uh, the methodology is essentially agnostic on on time. What we were able to do is, yes, with these around six months, one year, we were able to find, uh, to find changes in the prodromal phase. Okay.
1: What are some of the biggest barriers that you found um, applying this technology specifically for Parkinson's disease in this building a temporal relationship between these uh, MRI images?
2: So the barrier, and that's also the part that excites me the most, is how to um, create a mathematical representations that allows us to, to measure these. So uh, this is really what, uh, what we do on a daily, on a daily basis. So we take an image or a signal and we try to devise a, a mathematical representation that captures the signal that, we are, that we're interested in and removes, removes the noise. Uh, this is easier said than done because mm-hmm. nobody really knows what the, the signals that are good are. So what we have to do is try to use all the things that might make sense and keep, it, keep, it general, keep it the representation general enough. So that will allow the machine learning algorithm to learn from it. That's, that's, the, that's the trick.
1: So have we discovered how to find, uh, find people who are at high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease in the general population using any of these techniques?
2: So there are multiple research groups that try, try to do that. One way for instance is looking at electronic health medical records. Um, or or using uh, wearable devices, we have been particularly concentrated on looking at digital device interaction. So we have found, uh, while I was working at uh, at MIT with collaborators uh, over there, that if we uh, if we look at how people type on uh, touch screen devices and on keyboard, we can get a, a signature that is uh, relevant for Parkinson's, even the early stages. This signature is not dependent on how what actually you typed, it's not dependent on the, uh, on the language. What happens is that we try to get the time from pressing and releasing keys or pressing and releasing uh, touch screens and from that we can get the signature that is, uh, that is relevant for Parkinson's. The cool thing is that uh, we would not need to ask people to do a specified test. What we did is we have various publications that, that we, um, we track in the background what we normally do on Facebook where writing a report or a text message. And then from that, we can capture, capture the signature. And this is an active area of research that we are, we are pursuing.
1: Wow, so you're actually able to measure the time that it takes for someone to press a button, hold it on the screen, release it, and that actually becomes a little bit of data that you can use, gather it from a lot of different people, and actually extrapolate some kind of themes or, or trends.
2: This is, this is correct. This is called keystroke, keystroke dynamics. It's not some, the keystroke dynamics idea is not something that I invented. It was uh, even one century ago, uh, people using telegraphs were able to detect who was using uh, who was what. Uh, this was called, I think it was called the fist of war because they could tell if uh, there was an enemy sending a telegraph message <laughs> because the style was, uh, was different. So it has been known that wow. we all have different patterns. What we, what we have found is that there is also a signal that, is, um, that we can extract, regardless of who we are, for, for Parkinson's disease. And this is pretty, uh, pretty interesting because Parkinson's disease affects your fine motor skills of your, of your hand. We want to expand that to uh, Alzheimer's disease and cognitive cognitive components because we think that you know this type of technology has uh, you know a lot of, a lot of potential.
1: Wow, well, I feel I feel like that is using using data that no one else really pays attention to and applying it to uh, applying it to medicine at its finest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the. The other type of research that you, have meant, that you mentioned during your Grand Rounds presentation was about the peristroke time period and the possibility of using CT angiography um, to be able to detect the differences from the left side of the brain to the right side of the brain and actually have an answer quite quickly. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Yes, so in there we are trying to develop a method that uses uh, CT angiography, which is an image modality that is commonly available everywhere, as a proxy for more advanced advanced images okay, that are not available, available everywhere. If we were able to do that, that means that we can have a, um, a model, a tool, for a neurologist and a radiologist to see things that were normally, that would have been probably uh, be harder to see and uh, even at smaller hospitals. So to give an example, there is this uh, therapy called endovascular, endovascular stroke therapy that has shown to, be, uh, to work really, really well, but you need to identify a specific populations that uh, through these advanced images. And What we are showing is that maybe it might be possible to identify this population with less complex images. These are CTA with uh, with this tool.
1: So the are you saying the gold standard right now is to actually use uh, angiograms rather than using CT images to kind of differentiate between a breakpoint of whether or not to do endovascular stroke therapy? Well, not,
2: not exactly. What we are trying to do is still using angiograms, but they are angiograms that are much easier to acquire as opposed to... Uh, perfusion imaging or MRI perfusion images, which are not available are not available everywhere. This is uh, this is the idea, and uh, all of this work, you know, was done thanks to our you know invaluable clinical collaborators and our group. So we have uh, um, Doctor. Shmuel Chef, Doctor. Uh, Savit, uh, and then the people the people in my group, uh, Arco Barman and Danilo Danilo Pena. Also from the Parkinson Parkinson Realm, we have collaborators. Uh, Dr. Meyer uh, Dr. and Dr. Jessica Sweskin that helped. Uh,
1: more than a little bit. Do you feel that we could be using machine learning algorithms and brain imaging to prognosticate in our population that we see in rehab? For instance, with brain injury, specifically, a lot of the times it's traumatic brain injury, uh, or possibly patients who have cancer and have undergone systemic chemotherapy.
2: Indeed. So, and uh, it's not just me saying that. You know, there are a lot of researchers uh, like me that are trying to develop new methodologies for tackling exactly, uh, these needs. And uh, what uh, I think we are bringing a little bit more to the table is the the insight that by looking at uh, at progressions and learning machine learning. Approaches from the progression itself, we might be a little bit more more sensitive. That's the idea. Also, I've been talking a lot about images, but in uh, in medicine, images are not all. You know, especially a radiologist. Even if she or he concentrates on uh, on images, they really know what's going on with the patient. So the future is definitely include all of these uh, clinical data and uh, imaging data and uh, genomics, genetics, and uh, not to have a complete a complete pictures. Having said that. Uh, for building clinical tools you have to work with what is available so if you have a source of data that allows you know to to predict something and it's you know it does more or less you know what, what you need to do you probably want to stick to stick with that
1: specifically with the use of ct angiograms and Using that to detect symmetry in the brain and seeing where portions of the brain are not getting blood and where other parts are getting blood Um, Is is this new tool being used clinically currently? so um,
2: our what we want to do is to use um, our our models and to apply it in the with the clinical data in the real time and we have, uh, uh, we have a grant for doing, for doing that. What we are going to do is try to see if we include these models in the, in the clinical pipeline, and we're going to turn it on and off. These models are going uh, so to send alerts to the stroke team and to the radiologist, and we're going to see if these alerts will allow to shorten drastically the, uh, the time for, for action for the actual, for the actual therapy. And why we do that? Because we do not want to automate to getting radiologists and you know, decision make to have the decision-making done by the algorithm. We want to create tools that speed things up, okay? So the final decision will always, will always be by, um, by a clinician.
1: So in your opinion, do you think that use of these types of tools are, say, one year away, five years away, 10 years away? In terms of uh using them in even the most remote areas most rural areas of uh where medicine has to happen
2: well these tools have been here for a long time (laughs) so but people might not be even even medicine but people might not might not realize it Mm -hmm. so every time you know you you look at uh, at this medical scanner there's probably a little machine learning algorithm that, that does that does something um every time you look at uh, a EHR system, so electronic health medical records, there's probably a little machine learning algorithm that is, is helping you. And I think those are the best ones, so the ones that are, are there, but you don't realize even that they exist. <laughs> um, when, you, uh, when you see that, okay, this is, now it's essentially, it's, it's cool to say, oh, this is machine learning, artificial intelligence based, um, but things have been, you know, People have been using that for, for for a long time. Now, the benefit is that now it's uh, it's much easier to uh, to deploy and train these uh, these algorithms. And then we have the computational capabilities to look at a lot a lot of data. So the, the we can explore uh, many more areas. We can be much much faster. And also the entry point it's a little bit easier. So this is the reason why it has, it has exploded.
1: Is there anyone that you would like to thank, or any plugs for uh, a Twitter handle, or? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I would like to I would like to thank our uh, you
2: know our collaborators, which are invaluable. So this the, the whole Stroke team. So uh, Sunil Sunil she, uh, Victor, uh, Doctor Doctor Sean Sean Savitz, and. Uh, the uh, movement disorders, the mood disorder groups, so uh, Maya, uh, Dr. Maya Shees, Dr. Jessica Suezcon, and obviously uh, our our small team, and uh, without them it would have been impossible to, to do this work, so
1: Dr. Arco, Arco
2: Barman and uh, Danilo Pena.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Giancarlo, thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you for talking to us about, about your research. Thank you, the pleasure was entirely mine.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.